Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jared Tendler. Jared, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jared Tendler. Jared, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, Jake. Thanks for having me, man. So, Jared, mental game coach, among other things. Tell us how you got into that. Well, uh, about 20 years ago, I was trying to qualify for the U.S. Open uh, golf. Was an aspiring golfer, played in college, uh, you know, wanted to play professionally. And, you know, the basic deal is I choked. Um, you know, my game was always strong tee to green for those that know golf uh hit 16 greens hit 13 fairways uh in this qualifying round some of the best golf of my life but the putting was where where i was weak and you know pressure basically exposes weaknesses and i got kind of destroyed there so uh missed a bunch of short putts ended up missing to go onto the sectional qualifier which is basically a pga tour event because most um tour players have to qualify for the u.s open there's only like 50 spots that are guaranteed so, uh, but I missed my shot and it was kind of the first time that I really realized that if I was going to actually have a shot of being a pro, I had to get this under control, kind of dove into sports psychology. Um, and it helped, but it didn't solve the problem. Like, so I, I got better and under most circumstances, uh, I performed better except when the, the pressure was at the, at the highest. And so I kind of just realized that, uh, there's probably a way to build a better mousetrap if I can figure out how to do that, then, you know, I've got an option as a pro golfer because that seemed at that point to be my only chance of doing it. Uh, and then, you know, I had a kind of backup plan of being able to, uh, you know, become a coach. So both options seem pretty good and um, changed my major where I added a major from business to psychology. So I graduated um, with a business and psych degree, then got a master's degree in counseling psychology spent two years doing that, two years getting licensed as a therapist, never intended to practice. As soon as I got my license, I quit my job, flew to Arizona, and started working with golfers. Wow. So were you a bad putter, or you were a very good putter in practice and in practice rounds? And you know, before you would play professional rounds or, or semi-professional rounds, was it just that the pressure of the moment was always a problem? You know, I was never a great putter, at least at that point. I became one, um, you know, kind of thereafter. But... I was not a great putter at that point. You know, ball striking was my forte. Um, you know, I routinely would hit, you know, 16, 17 greens and only shoot, you know, one or two under par, which, you know, for most tour players, if they're, if they're hitting 15, 16, 17 greens, you know, they're shooting anywhere between, um, you know, five and nine under because um, they're just going to make that many birdie putts when they've got that many chances. Um, I couldn't do that. I wasn't doing that. Um, so I was, I was decent. I wasn't terrible. I was good enough to be a three-time All-American in college, you know, won nine tournaments in college. So I wasn't 
I wasn't bad, but you know what I what it, it was definitely the weakest part of my game, and that's where you know what under pressure it definitely got worse. You know, most of my other game, most of my game otherwise would kind of rise to the pressure, rise under the pressure as you know all great athletes are able to do, uh, but the pressure definitely uh, kind of crushed my my putting uh, at that time until I was able to fix the uh, the problem. So at the time, were you as introspective and self-aware, I guess, of, of what was going on, or have you only developed that after going through education and masters and working with a lot of clients and getting a lot of experience? I was an idiot. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I had, I had, I had no clue. I mean, you know, I, I really like. I, there's a lot of you know psychologists out there and people who like just love psychology from the beginning. Um, I had no clue of it. So I, like even now, like even though I'm like a mental game coach. I still feel like I'm an athlete. I still feel like I'm a golfer. Like that, that's kind of what I am at my core. I'm, you know, I played tennis. I played tennis competitively for a long time. I played baseball, basketball, uh, golf was the sport, you know, I was four eleven. you know, coming, going into high school. So, you know, basketball was out pretty quick. Baseball was out pretty quick. Tennis back then, Michael Chang was the only guy and, you know, Michael Chang and yeah, Andre yeah. Agassi were the young ones, uh, the short ones. So Leighton Hewitt. Wait and hear it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, there guys could do it, but, you know, it was much more common for there to be short golfers. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of just realized, you know, it was my best shot of being a professional. Um, but, uh, you know, at my core, I feel like I'm an athlete and I've just kind of learned the traits and skills of a therapist or of a, a, a mental game coach. So your first few clients, take us through what you started doing with them back then and, and how that's changed over the years. Yeah, so first clients were golfers. Some were, um, you know, like mini tour golfers, uh, you know, really good junior golfers, amateurs, um, some club uh, people. Uh, and really just trying to, what I would call kind of like train them on these like mental skills, like the mental fundamentals. You know, I kind of looked at, at the mind in a sport like golf where, you know, there are like kind of mental skills that need to be present, just like obviously there need to be the physical attributes of actually swinging the club and uh, and being able to putt and have your body move in the right way. So like the mind kind of needs to quote unquote like move in the right way too, right? It needs to maintain focus throughout the shot. It needs to prepare itself properly. You know, you need to be able to kind of reset yourself um, after bad shots or after bad rounds or after bad tournaments and, you know, be able to learn from it, you know, kind of very aggressively. And so uh, that was a lot of the work I was doing early on. And I really genuinely believe that what I was doing was, was like fundamentally different from everybody else out there. Um, uh, and I was severely overconfident. Um, I think I believed that I could, I could kind of create a unique program. Um, but I just was delusional. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, and so what ended up happening is that the, the golf practice, you know, steadily grew over about a two year period. Uh, at that time, I was working out of a golf club, playing a lot of golf myself um, I, over a stretch where I, I shot 63, 67, 69 uh, in about four days, playing some you know kind of money matches at this club. And it made me realize that I pretty much had solved my issues at that point. Um, and, and I turned pro, started playing some mini tour events. And it was like all things kind of just struck together. Um, about three months prior to that, I had met a poker player on the golf course. And he was a former professional golfer, was leading uh, one of the mini tours when he had a heart attack. You know, it was not like cocaine induced. The guy just had like some like, um, you know, genetic spasm thing that happened in his heart. And it basically killed his golf career. He's broke, you know, living on some friend's couch. And 
a buddy of his introduces him to online poker. This is 2006, 2007. And it, it just like fit everything that he loved. Spent 400 hours a month playing online poker back then and started grinding up, uh, learning how to play, making some pretty good money. And by the time that I met him, he was making around twenty to $30,000 a month playing anywhere between like eight to 12 tables of you know, online poker stars poker at the time. Um, and, and so, you know, flash forward three months after we met, um, he was having like major tilt problems. Those that don't know tilt and poker is just basically getting pissed off, breaking your computer, breaking your mice and losing a bunch of money. So he was trying to compete in this, um, year long race to play essentially a million hands of poker. It was called supernova elite on poker stars. And, and it was a massive thing. Like you have to play tons of poker and, you know, all of your uh, listeners know the, the variance that's involved in betting, the variance involved in, po- in, in, in poker. Um, so being able to place, uh, being, he was unable to play such high volume because the variance was basically killing him and, and he was just destroying stuff. So he called me and, and it, it like very, very quickly became apparent that there was this whole huge untapped market, right? You know, in golf at the time, there was Bob Rotella. There was, you know, uh, a dozen like famous sports psychologists that were working in golf. You know, let alone you know, kind of the local people who would probably work with golfers as well. In poker, there was no one, right? A guy named Tommy Angelo had written a book. A guy named uh, Alan Shoemaker had written a book, but they were really kind of basic. They were somewhat outdated. They were more like the psychology of the game. They weren't really the hard hitting, you know work that that a lot of people needed to solve these issues and and what what happened was um i got an opportunity to produce some some content for an online poker training site and in that process i kind of took what i had learned in my certainly my 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 master's program in my work as a as a therapist my two and a half years working with golfers and all of a sudden things started to click and and like the creation of this 12 video series basically created my program and it was at that point that I actually created something that was that was the beginnings of something unique you know flash forward a couple years I work with you know 100 to 200 poker players in that time frame making a huge business Uh, I write a book mental game of poker and and basically at that point you know like golf is kind of a a distant (laughs) memory at that point (laughs) but but I kind of joke because it, it just was a very happenstantial variance sort of thing that you know the same month that I turn pro I meet I start working with this guy and all of a sudden create this market and so I kept playing and 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 kind of working on my golf game um but you know within several months it just became apparent um that that this like poker thing really had legs you know you do the math it, it's going to cost anywhere between 150 to 200,000 dollars to really be uh serious about turning professional um, you know, over about a three-year time period, um, I didn't have that money. I would have had to raise it. It was going to be a big deal. And here's this thing that, you know, it was really kind of taken off. I just kind of took it and, and wanted to see where it would go. But I just kind of joke because it's like, you know, at that point, like diving into poker was actually like the safe choice. <laughs> like, to me, yeah. like trying to play professional golf was much riskier than getting involved in poker, which is somewhat ironic for most for how most people view poker. So shifting from, you know, you mentioned the golf in the beginning now towards poker and, and those who are listening to this are probably from the sports betting, horse racing, poker, investing, finance worlds potentially. 
did you boil down uh, the, sort of the principles you mentioned before, the mental fundamentals, which is a good term? Did you sort of go through that process and boil it down to a key number of areas for those in the wagering, gambling, betting, or investing worlds? I didn't. No. What ended up happening was um, everything that I was doing in golf translated perfectly into poker. Now, the situation's different, right? The situation's different. Like the amount of luck and variance involved in, uh, in, in, in poker pales in comparison to golf, but golf actually has some of the most variance uh, compared to most sports. Uh, so that allowed my kind of program to just sort of naturally transfer. I just needed to figure out how to translate it to that world. So kind of poker was the first foray, and then um, day traders started picking up the book. A lot of them play poker. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, picking up some horse punters. Uh, I've got some uh, guys doing live betting. Uh, other guys just kind of doing, you know, uh, uh, pregame reads, uh, that, that sort of betting. Uh, and, and that's kind of built up over the last, uh, say, three, four years. What are some of the common things or areas or issues that I ask you to address? I mean, tilt is one. You know, the anger issues that come as a result of making mistakes, of losing, you know, dealing with the running bad, um, just being super competitive. Uh, you know, the injustice of it all, the entitlement that co- that comes up, the desperation. You know, those are kind of the the, the big key ones. You know, the desperation meaning. Uh, you know, you're on a losing stretch and you're now going to start making some really negative EV bets and you're going to, you know, kind of double your average bet uh, at a time where you're making poor bets, basically trying to recapture it, you know, in the blink of an eye or snap of a finger. Um, you know, that kind of desperation destroys bankrolls, destroys careers, uh, makes guys have to restart or basically have to go get another job and support, uh, you know, their uh, profession or their skill on the side, um, not things that w- we want to happen, but that's, that, that has been predominantly the biggest thing that I've worked on with, with, uh, with clients. Uh, but then you also kind of get into, uh, the ones who kind of graduate from that, or I should say, you know, tilt is kind of the big one, but, you know, dealing with fear, anxiety, like the pressure of certain, um, uh, trades or certain positions or certain bets, uh, the fear of making mistakes, you know, it's a lot like any athlete, you know, the things that we see that often causes some of the bets to actually fail, um, can happen to the ones making those bets as well. Go through long down stretches. You start to affect, affect your confidence. You go through big winning stretches. It starts to affect your motivation. You know, you don't take things as seriously. And so, you know, there's lots of kind of dynamics that are involved in terms of how our emotions can affect not only our decision-making, being kind of the, the, the front lines of where uh, my work is kind of centered on, right? Ultimately, we, we care about how well you're making your decisions, right? I can't make you better at, at kind of finding edges. Um, I, I frankly, you know, have no interest in, in even doing that. Um, you know, I, as a poker player myself, I'm terrible. Um, <laughs> as a trader, I'm terrible. I don't do it. I've, I have, you know, a financial advisor. I'm, you know, pretty, fairly risk averse with my money. Um, except when I'm aggressive and finding some good opportunities that may pop up. But aside from that, you know, I, I, I know how much time and effort, you know, my clients put into being great at their skill. And I don't even attempt to do that. I don't even need to, right? I just need to understand the, the, the conditions with which you're competing, you know, well enough to know how to uh, help you do your job better. Uh, but once we kind of graduate from all that crap, right, the emotional shit that's, 
taking away from your performance, then it's like, okay, can you get in the zone? You know, I've got a, a horse puncher that, you know, that's been the, our primary focus for the last six months is, you know, look, he is, he is really good at what he does. He makes a very good living. He does not need to work with me. He does because he wants to be as good at, as what he does as the Tiger Woods, the Roger Federer's, the, you know, the best athletes in the world. That's, that's how he treats it. And so, you know, his, the percentage of his zone has increased dramatically uh, as a result of that. So what does it mean to be in the zone? Obviously it means that you're performing at your highest level. It means you're able to kind of pick up on uh, some of the bets that you wouldn't see otherwise. Um, you know, things that require that intuition, that sense, that flow, you know, being able to get in there consistently is not as easy as just snapping your fingers or just willing yourself there. It's a complex kind of mixture and formula of things. So that's a big area. Um, decision-making, right? Like for me, I look at the decision-making process that a poker player, a trader, uh, a better makes, like they go through to actually make decisions. To me, that's your technique, right? Equal to the golf swing, right? The golf swing, my golf swing has technique that's, that, that um, uh, is required to, to hit the ball the way I want to. And of course, it's not perfect, right? There's ways in which it breaks down. There's ways in which it breaks down under pressure. Uh, there's ways that it's actually better in some situations. So, you know, there's this constant evolution that exists within the golf swing and the decision-making process that is necessary for, you know, the for you guys, for everybody listening, it, it to me is not fundamentally different, right? There's a difference between your knowledge base and, your dis- and the decision-making process with which is required to extract that knowledge and put it into use. And when you are emotionally compromised, when you're tired, when you're bored, when you're overconfident, doesn't matter what the situation is, right? If your decision-making is breaking down, it's going to break down in predictable ways, just like my golf swing will break down. The better you understand that, the better you can train it, the better it will hold up under those pressure situations. Um, And so you can look at actually training your decision-making process like your golf swing. Um, So that's another area of obviously focus and goal setting and uh, learning more efficiently. Uh, Those are kind of more of the uh, kind of graduate level, let's call it, um, you know, topics that once the, the crap is gone, you can start to uh, work on. So much good stuff to unpack there. So when you say graduate from that, do you mean you can overcome that passion and energy and excitement and I guess negative energy a lot of the time when you go on tilt or, you know, we call it chasing in sports betting or horse racing when you yep. make a terrible bet afterwards because you're trying to double your money back and all that type of stuff. Can you actually graduate from that in a meaningful way or will it always sit somewhere deep down and you've got to work on it? So the simple answer is yes. And the complex answer is that is exactly why I got into this field. Right? What I got from sports psychology 20 years ago was the Band-Aid. Right? It was the thing that was going to kind of keep, it, keep my shit together under most circumstances but was going to break when it mattered most. So being able to understand how to solve problems at a deep level is basically why I went into uh, get it get a degree as a as a therapist. Right, therapists are, their job is to actually solve emotional problems, and so I've been able to kind of blend the two together. And and I'm saying this in that we don't have like I, with my clients like the majority of the time I am not doing therapy with them. It's just that I learned the skill set to be able to understand how to get at the root of an issue. And a lot of times we're talking about like performance issues, right? So a performance issue for me would be having high expectations, having uh, an illusion of control, having an illusion of learning, um, things like that, which, you know, like, I mean, high expectation is not a bad thing, right? A lot of players have it. A lot of people have it, especially 
you know, high-performing ones. But it, it can have a double-edged sword to it. It can create a lot of volatility emotionally. And there is a way to kind of keep the best of it, which is the motivational factor, and get rid of the worst of it, which is, you know, the emotional volatility. So the point is, like, when I say getting at the root of it and solving it for good doesn't mean we got to sit here and talk about your mom. Like, we're going to actually, like, talk about your performance and understand the causality that exists within it in terms of why it is breaking down and why you're failing, why you're chasing, right? Very often, players chase. Like, it's a form of desperation. Very often, it, they chase because they don't have the confidence to be able to know that their edge is real and that they just need to be patient, right? It's easy to say, right? And I'm sure lots of people uh, have said that to them in some variety of form. But in the moment, the emotion is so strong, it paralyzes the brain. And, and there's, a, a, there's a very simple principle that can actually help everybody listening to this uh, if you apply it pretty easily. Uh, the emotional system has the power to shut down higher brain function. So when your emotions get compromised like that, right, when you lose, and typically, you know, it, the most likely scenario is it's not one loss that's going to cause you to chase, right? It's a series of them, whether it's in, this, in a particular day or over particular weeks or months, right? It's a series of it that leads to it to the point where you, you, you crack, right? So you, you have to take action to start applying the correction that is going to solve this issue much, much earlier before it gets problematic. Otherwise, you don't have the brain capacity to actually be able to do that. You, emotional control resides within higher brain function, right? The same place where you have a thought in your head called working memory, the same place where you're making decisions, where you're planning, where you're you know, processing information, that part of the brain gets shut off when the emotional system becomes overactive. Now, it's not shut off like a light switch. It's more like a, like a you know, volume knob, right? But you know, we'll get to the point where one of the most frustrating things that will happen is you know exactly what you ought to do, but yet you still don't, right? Like you, you know you should not yeah, yeah. You know, make this trade. You know you should not make this bet. You're, 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 I've had a client like who literally was yelling at himself to not place a trade. He had his hand over the mouse, and he, it was like <laughs> it was like a scene out of like The Exorcist or something, and he couldn't stop himself. And and that that can be one of the most frustrating things for people to to, to deal with because there what you what you have is a scenario where the emotional system has shut down most of your higher brain function, so you're still aware of what's happening but you don't have the energy to be in control anymore. So you're screwed. I mean, you're not, you're going to make, you're going to fail and you're going to watch yourself fail. And that, that can just completely destroy confidence, completely throw people over the edge, you know, uh, in, in terms of raging. So the point is the emotional system is way more powerful than the mind. And if you start to appreciate that, then you have to look at solving this and starting to take action against this much, much earlier when the emotion is small. That becomes the front lines of the battle, not when it's big. You can't fight a battle at that point. It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? When, when the emotion is small, it's a fair fight. When the emotion is big, you got no chance. So I often ask people what they tend to do when they go on losing runs or bad runs. I don't necessarily say on tilt, but that fits in with the theme. They'll say things like, you know, I review my process. I might take a day off. They never talk about anything from the mental side or, or what you're talking about. Is it a segment of the professional sports better, horse racing punter, you know, poker player that's often missing? I mean, so when I got into poker, I mean, uh, with absolute certainty. I mean, now it's, it's pretty mainstream. Um, 
I think for the most part, yeah, you still have people that don't that don't address it. But um, ironically enough, you see it all. I see it all the time on Twitter. Like people get called out. Um, you know, they'll they'll bitch and moan about a handle book. You know, and then they'll you know immediately in the threads afterwards, they're like, read this book, call this guy. Like you know, it's it, like it, it's 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 so kind of ubiquitous at this point. Uh, but if we look at like the early days of poker, like for the most part, people were super skeptical, right? They assumed that I was going to talk about their mom, talk about their past, talk about their childhood, you know, do this like kind of touchy feely, you know, esoteric kind of thing and, you know, self-helpy and, you know, it's a bunch of guys. Nobody wants to talk about their feelings like fuck off. Right. And, and so like over time, I was able to kind of break them down with logic, like to kind of talk their language and say, like, listen, I hate that stuff just as much as you do. I was like you, just a golfer, not wanting to talk about this stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, like we are people. You are not robots. You ca- you have emotion, right? And I hear all the time people think that the ideal is to be robotic and to be numb to emotion. No, Right. Emotion is energy and you need that emotion to be sensing what is happening. You need that emotion to pick out the subtle details. Right. When you are numb and you're detached and you're blocking stuff out, there's a whole segment of just pure data about trading, betting, poker, whatever that you are missing. And and you're not going to know it because you're just you're too you're too engrossed or too embedded in, in your way of thinking. But it's it will cause you problems. So, yeah, it's a huge thing. And, and look, we look at like general society. You know, most men don't go to therapy. Most men don't talk about this emotional stuff, right? Because historically it has been geared towards women. And I'm, I'm like it's – or it's, it's either been ge- geared towards women or geared toward people who had legitimate like major psychological disorders, you know, and they needed psycho – you know, they Lots needed medication. Stuff, they yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like major stuff, like like the equivalent of, you know, going to the doctor because you've got cancer, you've got, you know, gallstones. I mean, shit. Like, what you know, name name the physical element. But you know, so I still have I still have clients. That, you know, I'm, I'm working in the uh, in the professional video gamer space now with the esports space, and these are like young kids, sometimes from countries where, I mean, if you if you go see a psychologist, you are certifiably nuts, right? Like that's that's how they view it. So the idea of talking to me when I know that I can help these guys, like it, it's they they cannot get over the hump because they'll it would just it would be soul crushing to them to have to talk to me. So they don't right, and most most people in the betting world, most people in the trading world, um, they don't. I mean, or they look for it and they find little pieces of it and it helps a little bit, but at the end of the day, they're like, yeah, this is crap. I mean, it's 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 not really that great. And and I agree with them. Like there there is good stuff out there, but it's it's kind of hard to find sometimes because a lot of it just basically tells you a lot of things that sound good. But then two weeks later, you're doing the same things again. It's like it didn't solve the problem because a lot of it is just a bunch of Band-Aids. Yeah, so what about if I said, geez, man, that's it's so therapeutic being able to go on tilt or do something wild or crazy. <laughs> is that the same thing? We're just talking about Band-Aids? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're ba- okay, so here, here's an analogy for you. Um, you have a leaky faucet in your sink and – or even like a leak in your roof. So what do you do? You stick a bu- bucket under it. Thing fills up with water. Once it fills up, you dump it out. Okay? That's the equivalent of going on tilt and having it be therapeutic. Oh, it's such a release. <laughs> Feels so good. Right? But then what? You better put that bucket back under there. Otherwise, your house is going to flood. So what happens? You just fill it right back up. 
and the same problems happen again, and it just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. If you want to be that way, if you want to bet, if you want to bet that way, like it's volatile. Sometimes yeah. it's fun. Yeah, makes for great stories. People love it, right? You know, um, if but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, I'm not. I I I have learned a long time ago that I cannot convince anybody to work with me. I mean, I am I am probably the worst salesman when it comes to selling my material to people that don't want it. Right, like there are some, there are people that could sell anything to anybody, but what I have found is that when I have tried to convince somebody to work with me, they're just they they actually they don't really benefit that much because it's like I'm not like a miracle worker. Like if I could give somebody a pill, I mean, hell, I'd be charging a lot more for that. But it doesn't work that way. Like you you have to at least be open minded. I'm I'm fine with skepticism. Skepticism, welcome. I'm a skeptic. But like just kind of pure like I'm not really into this thing. I don't think it's going to work. You know, then that that's generally not going to not going to fly. Um, so if if they're uncommitted to to at least trying it and saying yeah okay maybe there's a shot here, then uh, you know stick with the uh, the bucket dumping. You see the numbers. You want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade, and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So you mentioned before the, the horse racing punter makes a fine living and, you know, was doing just, just, you know, making enough money to live and then thought, you know what, I want to be elite. Do you think everyone can gain something from focusing on the mental aspect, being sort of self-aware and... I guess opening yourself up to the possibilities. Yes and no. I mean, um, so you know, everybody that that is open-minded, yes. Anybody that's not, no. Uh, but people that are open-minded um, and want to try this, like sometimes you're going to get worse in the short term. Um, so the benefits don't come instantaneously, right? Like, you know when you take the bandaid off and you start to expose things like you might think you understand kind of exactly what's going on and you think this, the, the, the solution can be relatively simple. Um, and it turns out to be more complex. Um, so the answer is yes. If they stick through the process, which for some people is difficult, especially if you're working on your own, um, the way that I structured, uh, my books is to use it as like a resource, not like a, you know, read it cover to cover and then never, look at it again, but instead it's full of like exercises and things that you can do and, you know, practical understandings, but you got to work with it. I mean, it's not like a, you know, like I said, something you can just kind of, uh, read once and, 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 and you're cured. Like it's, it's like anything else. I mean, if you're going to get better at being a punter, then you got to work at it and you understand like it could take you years to actually become skilled enough, you know, where you're actually making a consistent living. I'm not saying it's going to take you years before you're going to see progress in the mental game, but you got to be at least prepared to work at it. And most people still think that it can be kind of the, you know, the quick fixes and that just generally doesn't work. You know, you kind of get what you put in. So does everyone go through a, you know, a script or a game plan? And then as they go through that, they take their own path sort of off script and off game plan. You mean like as a client or from the Yeah, so if 10 people walked in and and they started, do they all go through the same process initially and then you find the best areas to focus on or what they're talking the most about, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's not not quite as formulaic. 
um, as you're describing, but my coaching process overall, whether it's, you know, day one or day 100 or session 100, uh, my coaching process is identical. Um, you know, we are looking to assess the problems and then we are looking to come up with solutions for them. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, I'm able to do very well is help people understand what progress looks like along the way, right? Like progress in the mental game um, can be messy. The early stages of that can be simply just being more aware, right? Like, you know, you mentioned that a few times already. Like, can you benefit from being more aware? Generally, you can, right? That awareness gives you the potential for control. But if you don't see that awareness as progress, then you're going to give up on a strategy that's working. So back to the question. The beginning of every coach, uh, every uh, client of mine uh, begins with, a, with a, them filling out a very detailed questionnaire. So, you know, it's generally filled out over several days, right? Like, not like it takes, you know, 72 hours to fill out, but, it, you know, you work on it for an hour, come back to it, work on it for an hour again. Because I just want to have good data, right, from the beginning. I, I learned early on that, you know, when I actually just asked people the questions in that questionnaire, um, you know, in our first session, uh, three, four sessions later, they would say, hey, you know, did I mention X? I'm like, are you shitting me? No. Like, it, it like, totally changed what I would have done in those first few sessions. And I hate wasting time. I like efficiency and just piss me off. So started this questionnaire where now everybody answers the questions up front. They're relaxed. They don't, you know, they get a lot of good, good data. And then I can actually look at it too in a relaxed way. And, and basically kind of formulate a game plan so that when we start, I do know where the areas are where we're going to start digging. And then we kind of hit the ground running. And it's a lot of just rinse repeating. Like we're digging in, trying to figure out what's going on, pull back out, come up with a strategy, go put it into play, come back a week later, two weeks later, tell me how it worked, what, what worked, what didn't work, what'd you learn. We take all that data, combine it with what we already had, and, and refine the strategy. Basically what you guys do every day. So are there any things that people do naturally that are positive or is intuition and I guess natural responses to situations that might be relatively high stress usually bad? I mean, if somebody is going to be intuitively strong, uh, like just naturally, they very often have already a lot of skill and they already have a lot of experience having that intuition be tested so that when they get into a poker, betting, trading environment, um, they at least kind of have a sense and they've worked with their intuition enough to know what's going on. But at the end of the day, like intuition relies on knowledge. It relies on knowledge that's very new, very sometimes unconscious, um, but it mixes with your existing knowledge base. And so for it to be most accurate, you have to have that knowledge base that's there. I mean, you know, you could take like a, a, a novice, better trader, poker player, and they might feel like, oh, I'm, I'm going to win here or, oh, you know, this is a great bet to make. And they're dead wrong because they suck. They have no knowledge. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just they're basically guessing. But at the time, it feels so true. Right? And, and it's just that's what makes fish fish. Like they don't they, they're so unskilled. They don't even know how unskilled they are. But but that that feeling can be so strong. Uh, and, and it's so flawed. So, so intuition relies on knowledge. Knowledge comes from years of experience. Some of it can be somewhat natural, but I think it's, it's freakishly rare to have somebody that has no knowledge of a particular industry had had no real experience, you know, kind of having uh, practice with their intuition prior and they come in and they're just like naturally just kind of, it clicks and they get it and they're, you know, crushing from the beginning. Yeah, no, that, that certainly makes sense. So, 
I want to go back to before you mentioned the, I guess the stigma of having a psychologist or a coach. Even people listening to this who might be very sharp people, very probably competitive and used to winning, you said you might not be very good at convincing them, but have you seen any other ways that those type of people that may be you know, close to elite category um, open, themselves up, open themselves up or get more self-aware, or is it just a, a long journey for those that have been doing things a certain way for a long time and it may not be worth um, trying to convince them? I mean, for me, it's not worth trying to convince them. Um, you know, I can kind of put my material out there. I can express what I what I do. Um, but, you know, very often, you know, when I look at, like, the poker players who were really resistant to my work, you know, at the beginning, like, what, what eventually convinced them, you know, two or three of their friends worked with me, and, and they had a lot of results, and then they started to overtake that guy, and now it's like, shit, I'm falling behind. All right, fine, I'll give it a shot. Or um, they just kind of hit rock bottom. You know, uh, I've had guys, you know, kind of come back to me after they had a ton of success and then they kind of lost their motivation, lost their passion. And they're like, I, I don't know what's happening. Um, and, and so that kind of could do it. But, you know, typically like um, it's going to it has to take something kind of external um, to really convince them. Sometimes it's it's like a crisis in their personal life. Um, but, you know, you, you look at like the professional athletes. You know, one of the things that Tiger Woods did for golf was two things. He made psychology and physical, you know, physicality, his physical prowess mainstream in golf. You look at the golfers now, I mean, they are predominantly, not all of them, predominantly are athletes compared to, you know, what golf looked like in the 90s where there was a lot of guys that were overweight. They didn't really take care of themselves. They may have even been thin, but they weren't strong. I mean, everybody's working out now on the tour, like everyone uh, most of the guys have sports psychologists. That was, I mean, both of those things were rare. So, you know, you look at what does it take to be elite now? And so if you can be elite without a psychologist, then more power to you. You, you don't have major issues. Uh, but the odds are that most people, if they want to succeed at the highest levels, they need to have kind of every dimension of their game taken care of. You know, you look at tennis players, especially now, I mean, you know, every, you know, Wimbledon uh, congratulatory speak talks about, uh, speech talks about, you know, their team, the physio, the personal trainer, the, their coach, their sports psychologist. You know, it's like it's, it, it is a multidimensional, uh, you know, kind of arsenal that is helping uh, tennis players. You look at, you know, footballers. Uh, I'm saying football, not in, you know, the American sense of the NFL, like the way that most people say it. Um, you know, footballers, like, yeah, these are some um, – strong-willed, hard-headed kind of guys. And and yet they're they're diving into it because they understand that every little bit matters. Uh, like I said, I'm, I can't make you better at what you do. I can only help you to use what you know more often. So I wanted to bring up two athletes with you, and you already mentioned one, Tiger Woods. His curve of whether it's motivation or passion or whatever it might be that's driven him, it's gone up and down in the last sort of, if you've followed his career for the last 10 years. Sure. Does that imply or does it imply that there's sort of a continuum of, I guess, his mental state or psychological state that's having an impact on his game? And is that something that you need to continue to work on? I mean, it, until we sort of solve the mental game, you know, it's not tic-tac-toe. So it's like anything, right? There's a strategy. It evolves. And, you know, as you age, as you have success, as you go through ups and downs, like, you know, it's just not... Um, 
we haven't figured out how to solve life yet. We haven't figured out how to solve the emotional or mental aspects of, of a game yet. Um, so yeah, he's, he kind of epitomizes a situation where in my opinion, um, he used a ton of suppression, a ton of mental fortitude to contain issues that basically literally kind of cracked open, uh, the day his, his, uh, window in his car got cracked open by his, his ex-wife. And that kind of shattered a lot of things for him. And from that point, the stuff that had been blocked out just came screaming out. Now, obviously, he had physical injuries as well. If it was only physical, if it was only emotional stuff uh, that he was forced to heal from, he would have recovered a lot quicker. Uh, but the physical stuff kind of compromised it also. And you know, look, he's got kids now. Like, there's, you know, it, it was a uh, a complex thing for him to figure out. And I think he's still figuring out. I think that's why he he didn't win the British this year. It's why he didn't win the PGA this year. Because psychologically, there's still something he has to figure out. He doesn't know yet how to win with this new mentality. Um, he can't use the exact one that he used, um, you know, 10 plus years ago to win 14 majors. Um, he has changed. The dynamics have changed, uh, and the dynamics have changed within within golf. Like no one's intimidated by him anymore, right? They all want to take him on. Right before he could use, you know, like that death stare. Uh, you know, in somebody's back, and it would cause them to miss pots. He can't do that anymore. No one, everybody knows his his tricks. So he has to find another way to elevate himself. And he's close. I mean, I, it would not surprise me if he went, if he if he if he won a major next year. Um, but I, I don't think he's quite there yet. The second is Phil Helmuth, and a lot of people know Phil from the the poker world. Is that just an act? Is he just a showman, and he gets away with it? Because a lot of things we've been talking about. Um, may not be compatible with some of the some of the the actions or some of the responses that he does. It's both. Um, he plays it up for TV. He definitely played it up back in the poker boom when you know advertising and poker sponsorships were a much bigger thing. Um, so from an entertainment standpoint, um, he was he was a great show. Um, and, but at the core. Um, it, it still happens far too often in ways that are uncontrolled by him. And so it is real. I mean, he is, in my opinion, the prototypical example of what I call entitlement tilt. Um, and, and that entitlement tilt has its roots in confidence. And Phil is insecure. I mean, I've never worked with him. Um, I've definitely offered a few times because, you know, obviously it would be a, a great land to be able to work with somebody like that. Uh, but he's got issues and, and until he actually addresses them in a deep and meaningful way, you will continue to see the same things that he has. He will control it at times. And then there are other times where the emotion will spill over and he will, it will be uncontrolled. So have you found any techniques or daily rituals that people can undertake just to improve a little bit and and see how they go before they embark on engaging sort of much more on the, on the mental side? Yeah, the, the most simple one is to not even necessarily focus like firmly in the mental stuff. It's to just start to look more closely at the decision-making errors that you make. And we can start to classify them in three ways. Um, you have what I would call learning errors, right? The learning errors are you were super sharp, you know, making great bets, making great trades, making great decisions, uh, but you just didn't know enough, right? Like there was just something about the dynamics of this race, the dynamics of this game that you just didn't know and you couldn't have known until you were in that situation. So that learning error, in my opinion, zero relevance to the mental and emotional function factors, right? You're, 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 you're men- your mind was optimal. There just was shit you didn't know. So, you know, that's bucket number one. Um, 
Bucket number three, I'm purposely jumping here, is the exact opposite, which would be the obvious mistakes, the mistakes that are so freakingly obvious that the second after you either place the bet or make the trade, right, you know it was a mistake, and you know why. And so those mistakes are 100% connected to mental and emotional flaws, failures, mistakes, et cetera, right? Because your knowledge at that point is so high, it can't be a knowledge deficit. That's not the problem. The problem is you couldn't access the knowledge before you were making the trade, making the bet, making the decision. So that stuff you want to start to really look closely at and start to ask yourself the question like, what the heck is happening here? And so you start to detail out, and I'm saying like literally like write down notes as these things happen or soon after. You write down the thoughts that came to mind just before. You write down the behavioral signs, like what are you doing physically that is different than normal? You know, what are some of the actions that you're doing? Uh, what are the, the like, like, can you feel anything, the emotions? Like basically just kind of mapping out that emotional state, that mental state that was kind of leading up to that mistake. If you can do that, at least you can start to create some warning signs, right, for yourself. Like, even if you don't solve the problem, just the awareness that, okay, now I can feel myself like clenching my jaw and squeezing my hands and, you know, tapping my feet. And if I do that, then I know that my emotional state's off and I just shouldn't bet here, right? And so I'm just going to calm myself down, get myself in a better space. You're still not going to be perfect, but if you can start to avoid those big, obvious mistakes, I mean, you will save yourself a ton of money. Uh, bucket number two is what I would call a marginal mistake. This is where it gets a little bit more complex. So I would not start here for those of you who are not that skilled in this area yet. But I'm saying it just so you know kind of what you're working towards. But the marginal mistakes are kind of this hybrid between emotion and technical strategic stuff where it's like, it's not an obvious mistake. It's not a learning mistake. It's like, hmm. Yeah, I could have known more here, but I also was a little bit, you know, distracted and a little bit tilted. So maybe I could have known it, maybe not, but I got to work on both, right? Because, you know, you're going to kind of straddle it. And this is typically the mistakes that people would just focus on the technical side of it, right? They're just going to focus on just getting better. And invariably, they do. They do get better, right? Because obviously, it's a marginal mistake. There is something to learn here. Uh, But... What ends up happening is you end up making those mistakes kind of too frequently for my taste, at least, because you're not addressing the emotional side of it. So, you know, on let's say let's say it takes you on a scale of zero to 100, right? 100 is like, you know, you're just kind of just completely raging and blind, right? For you to make an obvious mistake, you have to cross like, you know, level 80, okay? For you to make a marginal mistake, you got to cross level 50. That That's how it typically happens in the escalation, right? Early on, right? It might be a slight learning error. You know, you're in general control. Situations are fairly, you know, easy, right? But once it crosses this threshold, now I'm going to start making some of these marginal mistakes. And if you don't work on the emotion at that level, then it's, it becomes harder to stop from making those marginal mistakes. You end up having to force yourself to just learn so much, spend so much time preparing, spend so much time learning and working on your game to overcome the emotion that to me is just inefficient, and then, of course, obviously, you know, your emotions keep rising and it becomes obvious, but, but you know, can I get the point? So just to summarize, right, three buckets of mistakes, start paying attention to the emotions that cause uh, the obvious mistakes. And if, 
you know, those don't happen too often for you, then start paying attention to the, the ones that happen or that are more marginal. So what about people that are playing multiple hands of poker at the same time for 10 hours or people that are sitting in their home office day trading all day and all night or sports bettors or horse racing punters who spend hours and hours going through sort of statistics, analytics or, or form guides? How do you help those types of people? Is that just something that's, you know, it's time, it's time intensive and you've got to find a way to do it more efficiently or are there other sort of techniques and, and issues that you can address? I'm sorry, so are you asking if there's a, a, like, how do they find the time to do it? No, just how do you help them with that if if, if their process is just it takes a lot of time to get through it to the end um, and they might be lacking motivation or those type of things to get through it every time, do you address those types of issues with, with clients? Definitely, because, you know, sometimes those inefficiencies come down to having, like, a really kind of weak weakness, which might sound redundant, but it's not. Basically, if the gap between you at your best and you at your worst is too wide, then your process is going to be inefficient because it's going to take you a lot more to think through some of this more rudimentary, fundamental kinds of stuff that hasn't been mastered yet. Right? So there's, a, there's a, a tendency for people in all industries to focus more on just like learning a lot of new stuff, right? And, and they don't spend enough time focusing on f- mastering the fundamentals so those fundamentals continue to upgrade, right? So in essence, when you are off, right, when you suck, you want to suck less. And it's maybe the, the top yeah, of the, yeah. uh, Makes sense. The, uh, the, the, the title for my next book. Uh, <laughs> being able to do that takes away a lot of the, the inefficiencies. Uh, it also takes away a lot of the kind of highs and lows that people go through. You know, you look at athletes and certainly, um, you know, a lot of people listening as well, right? If you're the type of person that is very streaky, kind of relying on getting hot, relying on that momentum, the odds are that you have a very big gap between your best and your worst. And that streakiness is coming as a byproduct of that. Um, The reason is because it takes a lot of energy to kind of climb the ladder from your worst, right? Your worst is guaranteed. You don't have to do anything to be at your worst. It's super easy to be terrible. But... So you have to basically kind of have to earn everything between that and your best. And to earn it, right, requires energy. And, you know, two, three weeks, you know, you're just freaking nailing it. You're burning a ton of energy. And what's going to happen is you're going to burn out a lot faster than other people will. And as a result of that, then you're going to just kind of like kind of fall back and crash. And so you're going to suck for a little while until you build back up the energy again. And then once you do, then you'll crush it again. But you have to kind of rely on those, you know, hot and cold streaks because uh, your range is too wide. So what have you observed and learned from some of the, I guess, the best people you have worked with and clients that have sort of grown a fair bit or, um, you know, gotten two, three, five, ten percent better over time? Have you observed certain things that you can share with us? Good question. Um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, the process is complex. Um, it's not like super intuitive or obvious to people. Um, so you really do kind of have to train yourself to see the signs that you are actually making progress. Like, so you actually can see, for example, um, that you suck less in a situation, right? So like, you know, me with my putting, how do I know that when I'm choking, I'm choking less than I did the last time I choked? Cause for most people and certainly me back then, it's like a choke is a choke is a choke. But the reality is when you start to look closer, and you can see exactly kind of what you're working on, 
what ends up showing up is progress that is is very very minimal it's like the half percent to two percent improvement on the back end right when you suck it's like yeah you're just a little bit less bad and being able to see that is so fundamentally critical because it's proof that the strategy is working and that will actually keep your motivation to keep doing it you know so often people stop doing things that are actually working because they don't have the awareness or the vision to be able to see that it is or if it's not working and it truly is like yeah you suck equally as bad we will be able to learn more from that and dig into more of it because you're always learning something. And once you start getting your eyes trained kind of in this space, you invariably just pick up more stuff. And so even if you continually suck in the same way, every time around, you're going to understand the problem a little bit differently. And, and typically what happens is a client will come back to me and they'll say, oh man, like I, I just – totally, totally regressed, totally reverted back. And they feel terrible about it. And meanwhile, like my ears perk up because I know that now is our opportunity. And so often, you know, it's like they see progress in the first two to three sessions. You know, I don't talk to them for, you know, one to two months and they come back, you know, you know, tail dragging between their legs, you know, Hey, I fucked up. I'm like, great, let's figure it out. Right. And, and, and what often happens is that's where we find the gold the stuff that we didn't know the first time around, right? It was, it was because we had done that work. It was because they, their vision was trained that now we're able to see something we couldn't see before. You know, and, and look, everybody listening, you know, you've had that experience from a technical standpoint, right? Like you keep making the same mistake, make the same mistake, same mistake, and then all of a sudden, bam, you figure it out. It's the same thing here. So, you know, that 5, 10, 20%, I mean, I've had some significant changes, like true transformation from a person who just was like my first client. I mean, the guy uh, went from making twenty to $30,000 a month to making a hundred to $125,000 a month within three months, right? He had the skill all along to make 4X what he was making before, but he was too emotionally compromised to do that, uh, to do that, number one, and too emotionally compromised to play as much as he wanted to because he had to reset himself, because he had to deal with all this anger, right? That, that transformation, that huge leaps in capacity can happen from a, from a mental and emotional standpoint, just like it does from a technical standpoint. Uh, so yeah, I, I, that answers your question. I'm <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I, I wasn't sure what to expect from, uh, from this episode, but it's been entirely fascinating for me. I've, I've listened to some of your old episodes. I listened to the, the Daniel Negrano one. I listened to the author of, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck book, which was which was fascinating. Um, so I guess before I let you go, I just want to ask, what's the best way for those who are listening who something might have resonated, or you know, they something might click and think, yeah, why not? I'll give it a go. I've been thinking about it for a while. What's the best way for that person to find you on the World Wide Web or or get some more information? Uh, several ways. Um, you can go to my website, uh, jaredtendler.com or jaredtendlerpoker.com. Uh, information on my coaching is there. The books are there. Um, books are available kind of everywhere. They're sold. It's the Mental Game of Poker one and two. Um, they are not like they're not like a revised version. The Mental Game of Poker talks about the kind of the, the emotional problems, right? The anger, the fear, the confidence issues, motivational stuff. Book two is more of the kind of graduate level, you know, the zone, learning, decision making, focus, uh, things of that sort. So there are two different books. Um, the books are also available for free on audiobooks. So if you go to jaredtendlerpoker.com backslash free, 
there's a link and some information about how you can get the audiobooks for free. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at uh, Jared Tendler. Uh, that's pretty much where I am mostly. Awesome. Jared, it's been a great pleasure to chat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, Jake. Thanks. Enjoyed it. 